0: Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's counsel, trial lawyers, and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, Bibi Badejo, and today's guest is leading criminal defence silk, Joe Sidhu QC. Joe discusses a topic which is seldom focused on, but no less important, the soft skills of advocacy. Joe explores aspects such as breathing, projection and controlling the mind to eliminate distractions. This goes hand in hand with his approach to preparation, which is to simplify and distill the information to the bare minimum. Hello, Joe. Hi there, Bibi. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Can you just give us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I've been in practice in the jurisdiction of England and Wales since 1993. And my practice has been almost entirely focused on criminal work. And I have defended throughout, uh, not for any particular philosophical reason, but because the chambers where I've operated from have been dedicated defence criminal sets. And so my experience really has been across the range of criminal offences and obviously as my career progressed, so it was focused more and more on most serious uh, matters such as homicide, frauds and drugs, work and terrorism.
0: And as well as being a leading Queen's Council, you are also the vice chair of the Criminal Bar Association, aren't you?
1: I am. I was uh, elected, happily, because it's not much fun not being elected if you stand. I'm very much in the early stages of my tenure as Vice-Chair of the Criminal Bar Association, but it's um, a pretty fast-moving situation, BB, because there is an awful lot going on, broadly speaking, in the criminal justice system as a result of what's happened this year in particular because of the impact of Covid. And next September, I will uh, automatically ascend to become the Chair of the Criminal Bar Association. So in a sense, I'm like a lady in waiting before I get to sit in the driving seat and no doubt take the heat because we're in an era, I think, within criminal justice in this country at least, where there is a great deal of concern that in fact our profession may gradually become extinguished because of the pressures that people are working under and the fact that our setup is creaking to the point where it almost feels like it's collapsing. So I think there's a great deal of work to do, Bibi, in supporting the criminal bar, and particularly, I think, the junior criminal bar, who are getting the worst of it at the moment.
0: Obviously, as a leading Silk, which is QC for any of our non-English or Welsh listeners out there, you're at the top of the game. You're also going to be the chair of the Criminal Bar Association, an astounding advocate. How does that compare to when you were one of the juniors and you were starting at your career? What sort of advocate were you like then?
1: I think it's probably true of almost every advocate, unless they're lying to you or they were born brilliant at advocacy, that we all have to go through those early stages of learning through making mistakes And I can remember the very first time I went to court, which was Wimbledon Magistrates' Court. It was my first appearance and I was doing a plea mitigation. So that was a speech on behalf of a a youth, a guy who was about 17, who was uh, a persistent burglar and trying to avoid him going to prison or going to a young offenders institution, that my mitigation lasted probably about three and a half minutes. It did because I was speaking at about 90 miles per hour. And I just wanted the whole thing to be over with. It was like my first time out, and I thought the last thing I want is to mess up. The best way to overcome that, I thought, wrongly, but I thought was to speed up the way that I talk and to just, just pour it all out for the tribunal and hope, fingers crossed, that they'd give me the result that I wanted. One of the most important qualities of good advocacy is learning to pace yourself and getting your nerves under control so that your brain is to engage properly and what comes out of your mouth actually reflects what you're thinking rather than just some gobbledygook that you decided to splurge out because you had nothing better to
0: say. Unfortunately I completely relate to that in <laughs> speaking very quickly. Do you think that you've been able to identify a skill that's specific to you, unique to you, maybe that Not necessarily that you started off as a baby barrister, but something that you've developed by the time that you got to this stage.
1: My own view is this, is I think that when, because I've been teaching advocacy for many, many years, and I can see that in order to ensure that there's consistency of teaching, certainly within England and Wales, and sometimes abroad as well, because I do teach abroad, that we adopt a formulaic approach to how to impart the best skills and qualities of an advocate in a sense that's really important because it's it's essential that all our young advocates are singing from the same hymn sheet that they learn the same rudimentary principles of how to be a good advocate when you're examining in chief when you're cross examining when you're making a closing speech but one of the things i think Bibi, that we neglect and it's only because we don't have the time within our teaching programs to get this across is what I call the soft side of advocacy. And the soft side of advocacy are all the soft skills that you need to be a really good advocate. It's not actually to do with the way in which you frame the questions, but it is to do with things like breathing, relaxation, the ability to focus, the ability to exclude from your mind all the extraneous things that could affect your performance because they are distractions. It's everything to do with posture, how you sit, how you stand. It's to do with pace. It's to do with projection. It's almost as if one has to understand advocacy as an art form in itself. It deserves recognition as an art form, much as being an operatic singer or a ballet dancer or a musician or a sports person. In fact, that people need to appreciate and respect advocacy as a discipline in which there are rules that we must follow because they're essential in order for us to operate in accordance with court procedure. But that what is magical and amazing about advocacy is the way in which it allows you to flourish and develop as an individual personality so that the words that come out of your mouth are actually a reflection of the way in which you think about the world. It's the way in which you articulate your experiences. You can teach a young pianist, a piano composition from Mozart. And if you listen to someone playing that in Japan or in America or in France, and they are a novice, you're going to hear it played relatively similarly. When you get to the higher levels of performance art, that's when you see the inflections and the interpretations in the way in which experienced pianists will deliver that composition. And the second thing is this, baby, really important. Think of um, the rudiments of advocacy as the chord structure in a musical composition, borrowing that analogy again. What a really good advocate is able to do is to improvise around that chord structure, but never untethering themselves from that basic sequence of chords. So if you think of a great piece of improvisation, let's say John Coltrane playing My Favourite Things... It's a well-known composition, but when he plays it and then he goes off into improvisation halfway through, you can still hear the chord structure behind his delivery, and then he returns to it. And I think this is a really good way of getting across to young advocates, that you are, in a sense, as an advocate, liberated. You're free to do what you want, as long as you remember the rules of the game. So it's not free jazz, where you don't even care about the chord structure, it's improvisation. And... For me, getting this message across to young advocates about how you settle yourself into a chair in a courtroom, how you perform, how you start concentrating on your breathing, relaxing your shoulders, and we can come back to that later, is really the most important thing I have learned in the course of my career.
0: Do you mind if we stick on the soft side of advocacy? Because it's something that we don't hear about and I think is absolutely crucial. Having been on more formal training, I had gone on a course in Melbourne, Australia, and they had linked later coaches. And one of the things that they imparted, which I've taken on, is actually arriving. So when it's your turn and you stand up, you just position yourself, take that deep breath in and arrive instead of jumping straight into whatever submission or questions you're going to start asking because that gives you a chance to ground yourself but also assert your control in the courtroom. Going on from that, what are the practical things that you do?
1: We start with the first rule that you must, if you fail to prepare, prepare to fail. So it's an old adage, that you must ensure that you've done your homework before you ever step foot into a courtroom. And why that is important is this, most advocates learning their craft often get um, upset By the fact that their nerves get the better of them, they may come into court with an approach that they want to put across to a judge, and then they stand up, their mouth goes dry, their hands get clammy, their breathing goes all over the place, and that brilliant performance that they expected to deliver ends up disintegrating. So, the first thing is this you must make sure that you're prepared because if you're prepared, and then you step into a courtroom, one of the potential disasters that is waiting to befall you is removed. That is, that you've arrived and you're not prepared. Because if you're not prepared, and then you get struck by nerves, it's a double whammy. The second thing is this, is that if you are prepared, you have removed one of the key potential distractions, which is, where's that paper? Where's that document? Where's that fact? Where's that thing that I needed to mention at this particular juncture in my Advocacy performance, but because you're prepared and your file is ready and it's all in front of you, you shouldn't have that problem. So, when you're getting ready, actually, you should have all of that sorted out backstage. You then concentrate on your performance. This is what I would practically do I walk into a courtroom, let's say that particular day I've got to be cross examining a witness or I've got to deliver a plea in mitigation. I know that there's going to be some preliminary talk coming from the judge, possibly from my opponent. And so I've got a few moments to get myself into the zone. And it's almost like a Zen like state. I know what I'm there to do. I take my seat. And rather than keep flicking through my papers, which is simply, you know, looking back at material I've already looked at. And that's, that's not necessarily productive. What I will do is I'll simply sit there, listen to what's going on around me, and get my body into a relaxed state. Breathing is so important, whether you're an actor on stage or you're an advocate, which is a form of acting in itself, you must ensure that you are inhaling and you are exhaling in a very controlled, steady fashion. It's important for all sorts of reasons. One, because it means that if you're breathing correctly, your body is more likely to be in a correct posture because if you're hunched over, your lungs are going to be compressed, it's harder to inflate them to get the air up. Secondly, if you're sitting correctly and you're breathing correctly, you're more likely to draw air up from the bottom of your lungs rather than the top part. And as you'll know, Bibi, when people get nervous in court, you find that you can't get through even a sentence or two before you're desperate to take a breath. And that's because the air is coming only from the top part of your lungs. So breathing's really important, posture's very important, focus is very important, and putting blinkers on as if you're a horse in a race is really crucial. Because if you start thinking about what that juror over there is doing fidgeting with their papers or the usher is doing near the door exit of the court or the judge is doing who's frowning or what my opponent is doing, it's going to take me away from where I need to be. I need to be in a Zen-like state. I need to know exactly what I'm about to do and nothing is going to get in the way of that. And remember that somebody is listening to what you're saying and in all likelihood everything that you're saying is being recorded. The number of times in my early days I would read back a transcript of something that I had said in court and it ended up on a transcript because the case went to appeal and a transcript was ordered of some submissions I had made or a cross-examination I had done, the transcript picks up everything. This um, This isn't like Parliament where MPs who um and ah and make silly noises uh, can have all of that smoothed out in uh, it, it, when, when what they've said is published. This is a courtroom. And it's important, therefore, we always say to young advocates when we're teaching them, get rid of those little tics, those little habits that may infect your language in ordinary conversation. If you think about what I'm saying is going to end up on a page, it gives you a bit more discipline to ensure that you don't fall into schoolboy or schoolgirl errors. So I think about these things when I give feedback to students. Your pace should be in the way which I'm speaking now. This is a correct pace. It's a correct pace because it allows a judge to be able to keep a note of what you're saying. It's a correct pace because it allows the rest of the courtroom users to follow, even those who are not versed in law, ought to be able to assimilate your sentences and not feel that you're running ahead of them. So this is important. Pace is everything. Remember the story I told you about my first day in court in Wimbledon, magistrates? No 90 mile per hour speaking. Speak at a sedate pace. Secondly, never mistake volume for power. There is a huge difference between shouting across a courtroom and reaching the other side of the courtroom through sheer power. Whether you are female or male makes no difference. All of us have the capacity to drive our words across a courtroom so that it reaches the nether regions of that room, so that the jury on the back row can hear every word as if you were sat next to them. And that comes from here. It's power. It's not about shouting or telling everyone, my client is innocent, you must acquit my client. You don't need to do that. And in fact, that's very off-putting, as you can tell from the way in which I'm doing it. It's about power coming from inside your gut, So in terms of transmission, the soft side of advocacy that I want people to understand is that you use your voice as a tool, as a weapon, as a means of communication that results in the rest of your person becoming almost invisible. You have to imagine a world in which the jurors have all closed their eyes and the judges closed these eyes and all they are focusing on are your words. And that means that your voice needs to be pleasant to listen to. So what I would say to people, look, not everyone necessarily has what you might call a courtroom voice. And uh, I can tell you, Bibi, Look, I grew up in a part of West London in a town called Southall, which is a very working class town with a very large number of Asian migrants who came and settled there, just like my parents from North India in the 60s. And when I was at school, which was a state school, a comprehensive school, as we call it, the way that which we, we spoke to each other as kids was what is now called street. It's, 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 it's more akin to hearing the way in which people who rap or do hip-hop or kids off the street would speak. That's how I used to speak, and I can switch back into it if I need to, depending on the circumstances. But my point is this. As you grow, as a young man or as a young woman, as you grow through the bar, through evolving as an advocate you will realise that your voice will change, and you shouldn't be afraid of that change. Like many people, I regard myself as something of a chameleon. So I have learned to adapt to different environments, learned to change my pitch and my style according to which type of tribunal I'm addressing. If I'm in front of a Lord Justice of Appeal in the Court of Appeal, the Royal Courts of Justice in central London... I will not be speaking to her or to him or to any other senior judge the same way that I would to someone who's in a jury from a pretty uh, ordinary working class part of Manchester. But the evolution of your voice is a natural, organic process. And you must learn not to fear that. Recognise that as you get older, you go through your 20s, you go through your 30s, 40s, your voice actually physically changes. The actual resonance in your voice, the vibration in your vocal cords, it changes because physically you are changing. And so you must learn to adapt to that change and not think to yourself. And you've seen I've seen this many times, young advocates coming into the English bar with the idea that the English bar is still very much a very posh institution with posh judges, who most of whom went to private school, most of whom went to Oxford or Cambridge University, and it's populated by a lot of uh, middle-class people, upper-middle-class people, in fact, who speak in a certain way, almost as plummy as the Queen. And so what happens is young advocates think, if I don't want to stand out in the wrong sort of way, the best thing I can do is to fit in. And fitting in means I now change my voice so that I sound posh. And you hear it all the time. And it doesn't take long for someone like me who has quite a a sensitive ear to accents and to styles of speaking to know that that person is not actually from an upper middle class background because eventually they will they will lapse and some something will come out a consonant or a vowel that gives the game away. And I say to people, look, this is the 21st century. We believe in a diverse bar. We believe in a bar that reflects the society that it's serving. The bar is a group of men and women who are essentially public servants. And that means that we shouldn't be afraid of embracing the differences amongst us. And if that means that some people speak with a different accent, it could be a different regional accent. Someone from the north of England in Yorkshire is not going to sound the same as somebody from Brighton on the south coast. It could be somebody who has uh, an accent which has an ethnic quality to it. It may be that you can still hear that somebody has a slightly Nigerian twang or an Asian Indian twang to their accent or a Chinese twang to their accent. None of that is to be regarded as outside the norm. The norm is whatever it becomes in any historical era. And right now, and hopefully for always, we will have a bar that is so internally diverse that each of us when we go into courtroom, hear someone else's accent and things that's really interesting not that that's actually suboptimal but it's really interesting what is important is that whether you have a working class accent or a middle class accent whether you're from the northeast southwest of the country whether you're an american who's in in london you know working as an advocate or indeed someone from britain going elsewhere accept who you are abide by the ground rules grammar is important grammar is important diction is important being articulate is important because we are a specialized breed of lawyer we are advocates and eloquence is desirable if you can produce an eloquent plea mitigation all the more listenable all the more attractive
0: that's such helpful information for younger advocates to take on and i was just wondering for people who are around my level of experience which is 10 years we may have developed bad habits but do you have any advice for how we can start unpicking that so for example with pace how would we start cracking that so we start speaking more slowly
1: i think the best way actually is to get feedback from people that you trust so uh, the irony of our profession is as you know Bibi, that it's very rare that somebody in your own chambers will ever get to see you and particularly when you're starting out as a pupil and. In a way, you're terrified that somebody from your chambers might be in court that day. But on the other hand, if you feel this is a good case for me to show off a little bit and show how good I am, you'd quite like someone from your chambers to be a witness to that. Generally speaking, we don't get that opportunity. But if you get that opportunity, and it is someone who either is from your own firm or your own chambers, or indeed not from your firm or chambers, but someone that you you know well and you trust, always feel that you should ask for feedback. So if you did a performance in court... Go and ask them, how did that sound to you? And don't say, don't lie to me. I don't need to hear things just to make me happy. Tell me the truth. How did that sound? And tell me what I can do to improve my delivery. The way, certainly in the English jurisdiction, it works is that judges being largely uh, emanating from a middle class background, very rarely ever pull an advocate up on their style or on their language very rare it's considered patronizing it's considered to be condescending so they don't do it and that's in a way a shame because it may be that someone over many years is making the same mistake and no one's ever pulled them up on it because they've never had anyone around at the time to do that and then we get to hear it sometimes when we're in court and we think oh my goodness how did he spend the last 20 years speaking like that and no one ever pulled him up i think you need to have your own self as your best critical friend But it's great to have a third party who can do it for you as well.
0: Thank you so much for expanding on the um, soft skills. And now we're going to move to case preparation, because as you said before, preparation is key. It's preparation, preparation, preparation. And Joe, what I was wondering about was if you have a particular process to the way that you approach your cases when you get them.
1: I do, uh, and it's been, uh, Bibi, the same process I've adopted for about 25 years. It's really basic, and it's really simple, and it really works. And it goes like this. So what I tend to do is, whether the case papers, that's the witness statements, the documentary exhibits, etc are in fact uploaded to um, the digital case system, or whether I'm actually given hard copies, all of my papers end up in a lever arch file or two or three. My objective is always to slim down the papers that I really need into not a lever arch file, but a slim file. So it becomes extremely important to me to do the sifting exercise, the filtering exercise, so that I can focus on what really matters. So stage one for me is get all my papers together and order them. I have a particular approach, a formulaic approach. I like to use tabs in my file. My first tab in my file is invariably the case summary that's prepared by the prosecution. The next tab will be the indictment. The next tab will be the list of witnesses. The fourth tab will be the actual witness statements that I'm going to need for the trial. In other words, the witnesses I'm going to be cross-examining. The next tab will be my list of exhibits. The tab after that will be the actual exhibits, the documentary exhibits which are going to be important for me to have to hand in the trial. And then after that, I've got a tab for what we call unused material. Then I've got a tab for my client's instructions in a proof of evidence. I will have a tab for the defense statement. And finally, I will have a tab for correspondence. And all of that gets pared down to a file that ultimately is a slim file that I can walk around with. It's my walk around file. And this is really important because if I tell you what my style of advocacy really boils down to, it's this. It's about minimising the material which you've got to only those essential papers that are going to be used and deployed in the context of the trial. And the rationale behind that, BB, is to remove all extraneous matter which can distract you. And I'll, I'll come on to this in a minute when I talk about how I prepare my cross-examinations when we get to that. But for the first stage, it's this. Think of an advocate as essentially an accountant An accountant crunches numbers. An advocate crunches facts. So when I teach case analysis to young barristers and we talk about how you dissemble the information which you've got, I will say to them, you've got the relevant law, which you must make sure you're on top of. That's to do with the statute and the authorities which are relevant and including criminal procedure rules or civil procedure rules. Then you've got the actual material in your case to do with the facts. That's the witness statements, the exhibits, etc. And what you're looking to do is to condense that information, crunch it down a bit like an accountant does, so that you only have the bare essentials. The first stage is organise your material in a way that works for you. And I'll mention one other thing about this as well, Bibi, and it all sounds very... You may think, my goodness, this sounds like he's preparing for his GCSEs or his A-levels, You know, has he really been doing this all his career and managing to get by? The answer is yes, and I'm going to tell you what I do. I use highlighters like they're going out of business, right? For me, highlighters are an absolute godsend because when you talk about preparing you for your case, identifying what really matters is crucial. When I talk about crunching facts, so let me tell you what my little system is. I use a pink highlighter for dates and times. I use a green highlighter for locations. I use a blue highlighter for any exhibits that are mentioned in a witness statement or on an exhibited document. I use an orange highlighter for anything that relates to my own client and only my own client. So for example, if it's a murder uh, case where I've got there's three, four, five defendants, and I'm representing one of them, my client will get an orange That's what he gets because that's about him because it helps me to focus on what that witness is saying about him. And then I'll use a yellow highlighter for just, you know, contextual things. And what that means is this. When I stand up and I have a witness statement in front of me and I've highlighted it in the first tranche of work that I've done in preparing the case. I've already done that highlighting thing where I've seen what really matters, dates, locations and all of that. My eyes don't dance around the page. I don't confuse myself and start thinking, oh my God, where, where is it? I know it's there somewhere. Was it on the second page? Was it on the third paragraph? Where is it? I don't need to worry about that because I've highlighted it and I know exactly where to find it. So when I prepare my cases, that is part of the initial work that I do, putting them in a file, tabbing them, highlighting them, and then filleting that file and taking out from the file. What do I actually need? And what I actually need, Bebe, of course, is informed by my client's instructions. Um, what they say happened, what they say they disagree with in the witness statements. That allows me to make decisions about which witnesses I actually need to come to court so that I can cross-examine them and which witnesses I don't need. And then I begin the process of preparing my cross-examination. And if I may be, I'll just tell you what I tell all my students. And I think some of them think I'm making this up because they think you can't possibly do that and get away with it. But I do get away with it and I've been doing it for a long, long time. And it's this. For me, the rule that I operate by, the name of the game is I want the minimum number of pages in front of me when I'm standing up and doing advocacy. The minimum. I only want what I really need. So I'll tell you how that works. When I'm listening to a witness giving evidence in chief, examination in chief, I know that the vast majority of barristers here and I'm sure elsewhere in other jurisdictions as well will write notes, usually long-handed notes of what the witness is saying. And my goodness, that's really, you know, energy-consuming, it's time-consuming, it means that you're focusing on writing down what the witness said, and of course, witnesses don't speak in the way that a barrister should be speaking at a, a, you know, a, a regular pace, and it's really difficult to keep up. For me, that is madness. It's madness to write down everything a witness is saying, because it means that if you're doing that, you're not actually studying the witness you're not looking at the witness and you're not really listening to the witness what you're doing is you're being a scribe and you're writing as quickly as you can a bit like being in school in a classroom when the teacher's punishing the students for misbehaving they say right write down the following and they move at about you know 500 miles per hour and everyone's scribbling until their wrists and their fingers absolutely ache i don't see the point it seems to me to be supremely inefficient i'll tell you why The reality is that when an advocate, let's say a prosecutor, is leading their witness in chief, not leading them in leading questions, but they are taking their witness through their statement, they will, generally speaking, go through the statement in the way in which the information is set out on the statement. And most of the time, a witness will, in fact, simply say what they said in the statement. They might change a word or two, but they're, generally speaking, going to say what they said in their statement. Sometimes they go off-piste, and we can come to that. My point is this. If, in fact, a witness is, broadly speaking, saying what's in their witness statement, why are you writing it down longhand? It's almost completely duplicating what's on the face of the statement. Just get your red pen and tick, tick, and tick, as the prosecutor goes through the statement in chief, tick, 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 and that means that the test is, as long as the witness pretty much says what's in the witness statement, tick it. If, however, the witness varies from their witness statement in a way that matters, In a way that is material in a way that betrays some inconsistency which may itself reveal that they're not telling the truth and in a way that may give you ammunition for cross-examination write it in write it in blue ink so different colored ink you've ticked to say they've got that right in red but you write in blue ink anything which is a variation that means you can come back to it when you're cross-examining in black ink what i do is i write in the margins of my witness statement any difference between my client's instructions of what happened and what the witness is saying. So I don't end up having a piece of paper here for the witness statement, a proof of evidence over here, and on top of all of that nonsense, a third document, which is the notes I've made of what the witness has just said in chief. I don't want that. I just want that one thing. So when I stand up in court, it it may look odd to some people and they might wonder why, how I'm doing it. But What I'm actually doing is, everything I need is on here. Everything. So I can see what's changed about their statement. I know what to cross-examine them. I know equally that what's in black ink means, Joe, whatever you do, do not sit down until you have put your client's case. And you cannot be excused from failing to do that if it's in black ink right in front of your face. So for me, simplicity, Bibi, simplicity... Condensing your information allows the advocate to become liberated because then what happens is, BB, if you've got rid of all the guff and all the distraction and all the extraneous matters from all those different documents you don't need, we get to hear Bibi. We get to hear her. We get to appreciate her personality as an advocate because she's only got the one document in front of her and it allows her to focus on the witness rather than to focus on the paper.
0: I'm adopting literally everything that you have said in terms of the highlighters and the streamlining. Do you have a different approach to more complex and lengthy cases or is it generally the same? But I think you've said that it's literally the same process that you go through. And obviously, while you're filleting this case from hundreds or thousands of pages, you have absolutely read everything. But there's the core that you have gone through so many times that you've you've literally memorized it and you can be that free advocate, would that be a fair summary?
1: Absolutely, I I mean, it's the old conundrum that sometimes the simplest cases, the single common assault on one complainant by one defendant in a magistrate's court ends up being more complicated than a murder case at the Old Bailey with five defendants. What one learns from that is that you cannot assume by the nature of the offense or the outward complexity of the case how simple or otherwise it is to perform as an advocate—that's not the way you should think about it. So you don't say to yourself, in other words, "Oh my goodness, my case consists of ten lever arch files. Oh, that's really complicated. I'm going to have to do cross examinations that last for two or three days." It doesn't follow that there's no such consequence just because of volume or even of complexity. What is critical is to have a methodology for your preparation, that works for you. And what I have simply expressed is what works for me. It may not work for other people. If you wanted me to sum up, actually, in line, what my sort of philosophy of advocacy is, it's clear the decks. Just clear everything that you don't need so that you can focus on what you need to deliver.
0: You've given me and the listeners practical ways in which we can come alive as advocates. And if I just move on to examination in chief, and I know it's called direct examination in other jurisdictions, how do we make our witnesses who are telling their story come to life and sound more interesting? Because I know sometimes what some advocates aren't so great at is making it interesting and it's just that boring, I can read it on a statement, it's not very interesting and someone turns off, but actually what they're saying is very key. So do you have any tips for that on how to bring that story to life?
1: Bibi, have you ever read a a story to a a young child? Yes. So all human beings love stories, okay? It doesn't matter whether you're, you're five or you're 50. There is something about the human psyche which is attracted to a story and to storytelling. And I believe that the best advocates that we have are the best storytellers. And there's different ways of telling a story. The purest form, of course, is making a speech to a jury that's a way of having an audience a captive audience of 12 and you're telling them about your side of the story that that your party that you're representing and you're making it sound as attractive and as listenable as possible ideally that's what you're meant to be doing but there's another way of telling a story and that's of getting someone else to tell your story so shakespeare seldom ever performed in any of his own plays there were other people who did that now witness in a sense is is you're the director they're the actor They know their lines because they've read their statement invariably before they've come into court. Therefore, they're not going to be surprised by any of the questions that you asked unless you ask a question that's badly framed and that's your responsibility, not theirs. The key thing in in examination-in-chief or direct examination is to make sure that you allow that witness to be the storyteller on your behalf. The actual magic is to find a way to get the witness to tell the story so that it sounds like it's a flowing stream. It's almost like a, flow of, a stream of consciousness that the witness is talking about something that happened on a particular day, at a particular place, in a particular way. And you want the witness to bring that story out. Now, it is a form of subtle control. Be under no illusion. The best advocates are the biggest control freaks in the universe. They are the people who actually know what's going on around them in court, they're almost like, you know, the radar that you have, you know, the, what they call it, the ATC at, at uh, Heathrow Airport, that constantly goes around. It's almost like if you're a really good advocate, you should have this thing going around your head, constantly picking up information around the courtroom, okay? But in a way that doesn't affect your performance, it's just that you're getting the information coming to you. So when you've got a witness, the witness is part of that circularity of information in the courtroom, and you need to tune into their frequency. So what I would say to you is this, baby. The best advocates are emotionally intelligent women and men. They can read people quite well. They know if their witness is nervous. They know if their witness needs to be settled in. They know if their witness is struggling. They know if their witness is is actually having a problem remembering it. And they know before the problem happens and becomes manifest enough to cause an issue in the trial. So you need to be emotionally intelligent. The worst people as advocates that I come across, whether it's in... Uh, examination chief direct examination or cross-examination are the ones who sound like I couldn't care less who you are as a witness you're just another witness it's just another day at work for me I don't really care whether you suffered a terrible injury or or whatever it's I'm not really bothered about that I just want you to answer my questions so that we can get it done okay that's terrible because what that means is that you really aren't communicating to your audience that you care the first thing I do if I'm calling a witness Or even if I'm watching a witness being called by my opponent, as I study them, from the moment they come through the door of the court, I'm watching them as they walk. I watch them walking to the witness box. I watch them as they take the oath or make an affirmation to tell the truth. I watch them as they hold their religious book. And then I'm thinking to myself, what emotional state is this witness in? Is it a professional witness, like a police officer or an expert witness who's super confident, does it all the time, it's just another day at work for them? Or is it someone who's never been in court before and it's an absolutely terrifying experience for them? Now, if you are examining your own witness in chief and you don't care what state, emotional state they're in, the questions that you ask are not going to get the best out of your witness. So first thing, number one, tune in. Tune in to their frequency, read them. Human being to human being across the courtroom, read them. If they sound nervous, change the tone in your voice. So when I said to you earlier on, BB, versatility is important, I've given you what I think is the most important way to approach case preparation. If you say to me, Joe, what's the most important quality, single quality you need as, a, as an advocate to get you through one end of your career to the other, pain-free and as successfully as possible, I will say to you, versatility. It's the ability to adapt to your environment, to your tribunal and to your witness. So if you have a witness who is a professional, you don't need to worry about settling them down. But if you're dealing with a teenager or let's say a complainant in a sexual offence and she's extremely uh, fragile, you can't just go into it on the basis that, right, now I'd like to ask you about the 17th of September last year and uh, what happened in an incident involving the defendant she may be absolutely so terrified that she can't think about what happened in that incident. So you need to settle her in. So questions. Questions in chief, non-leading, obviously, in our jurisdiction, absolutely fundamental, is the corollary of what I've just said about getting the witness to tell the story rather than you, because if you're leading them, it's not their gig. It's your gig, and that's not how it should be. So short questions which move the story on and are framed in a way that you because they're short questions you recede into the the recesses of the court the shadows of the court you become almost invisible and the spotlight falls only on the witness because it's their answers that matter not your questions and as you know bb questions in our jurisdiction are not evidence doesn't matter how brilliant your question is it's not evidence the answers from the witness the testimony is what is evidence So the shorter your questions, the more likely it is that the witness is going to be able to tell their story without you suffocating their narrative. And that's very important. Don't suffocate their narrative. It's not about how brilliant you are. It's about that witness. If you want to show off as an advocate, don't do it in examination in chief. You can do it in cross-examination a little bit, and you can certainly do it in your closing speech Definitely, because the jury wanna hear from you. But on examination in chief, you need to be that small. You need to be tiny. You need to almost not exist. It shouldn't be like it is in cross-examination where it's a Wimbledon tennis final, where the ball goes from one side of the court to the other. Mr Sidhu asked this question in cross-examination. He's got the witness on the ropes. The witness struggled to give an answer, but came out with this nonsense. Mr Sidhu pounced on them and took them back to their statement and proved that that was a lie. That's different. That's a different dynamic. That's, why, that's the glory of advocacy, that different types of stages in a trial bring out different styles of advocacy. But when it comes to examination in chief, it's not a Wimbledon tennis game. There's only one racket, there's only one ball, and there's only one player, and that's the witness.
0: My next question is something that straddles, I think, case preparation and also direct examination, examination in chief, which is how do you deal with weaknesses or blemishes in your witnesses' evidence. And another reason why I thought that case preparation comes into it, obviously, is that you will have bad facts in your case. How do you neutralise them or spin them in your favour?
1: Okay, so rule number one is it's not your evidence, it's the witness's evidence, so don't try and spin it to the point where it sounds like you're giving evidence. So when we have a witness called in chief... Because it's meant to be their story, and because you're not meant to lead them, your questions have to be framed in such a way that they are simply triggers to the answer. There will be times when either your witness doesn't come up to proof, and as we know that means that you've got a witness statement from them, but they don't say something that's in their witness statement, or they actively go off proof, or off piste, and say something that you weren't expecting, and you think, oh my God... Why have they just said that? That's just terrible. Okay. These are two typical situations that you have to encounter from time to time. Let's deal with them consecutively. So the first one, the witness doesn't come up to proof. So they forget to say something, which in your own case analysis, as one of the important facts that you need to prove, to prove your case or to defend in your case, depending on which side you are, you say to yourself, oops, they haven't said that. So There are a couple of ways in which you deal with it, and it may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. So in our jurisdiction, in England and Wales, if someone doesn't say something, you can go back to that point a second time and say to them, can I just ask you again, when he was shouting at you as you said, something happened you felt threatened by? What was that? Now, what they said in their witness statement was, He raised his arm as if he was going to punch me. But the witness forgot to say that. So I just want to take you back to that, says the advocate. Can you just tell us again what happened? Now, you'll get a second bite at the cherry. Most advocates are allowed to have a second bite at the cherry without objection from their opponent or from the judge. The judge and the opponent will know why you're doing this because they'll have noticed, if they're doing my method, the red tick... Didn't happen on that one. Ah, too bad, Sidhu, you, you didn't get that out, did you? So I'm not giving you a red tick because you didn't elicit that bit of information. But we are all allowed to have a second bite at the cherry, and so you try that. If, however, your witness then doesn't realise that they have omitted something, you go to the next step, which is to remind them as a memory-refreshing document from their witness statement of what they said. Now, scenario two, they've gone off-piste. That's much more difficult to deal with because you can't erase that which has been said. When an advocate gets a bad answer, a wrong answer, saying something which is unhelpful to their case, which they did not expect to hear, they get tempted to go back over it and ask at a second bite of the cherry, I want to bring you back to what you've just said. When you said his hand was down, did you mean that? Now... The problem with that is that it's obvious what you're doing. The jury don't know because they haven't got the statement, but the judge knows and your opponent knows. And it looks like you're trying to get your witness to rewrite their evidence. And that's why it's really important to be extremely careful and be subtle if you are going to go down that road. The reason for that is because the rule is you cannot cross-examine your own witness. And cross-examining your own witness doesn't just mean putting words into their mouth it also means that you can't offend the spirit of the rule against cross-examining your own witness, meaning you can't get to a position where you are effectively challenging your witness. Did you really mean that? Because that sounds like a challenge to your own witness because you're trying to get them to change what they've just said. Bear in mind that everything that's happening is being noted by your clever opponent who's thinking to themselves, this is great, because the more sidu goes on, trying to cross-examine his own witness, the more ammunition I've got for when I stand up and I say to the witness, you've just been taken through a series of questions by my learned friend, where you change your mind three times in the course of five minutes in this courtroom. That tells us, doesn't it, that either you don't remember what happened, or you're just making it up as you're going along. So be careful. And in a sense, it's the rule, least said, soonest mended. If you get a bad answer... Remember, it's not your job to give evidence and sometimes you just have to take it on the chin. You just have to take it on the chin and hope that that one bad answer does not offset all the good answers that you've had and that in the scheme of things, weighing it all up, when you come to address your tribunal at the end and make your submissions, you can make a throwaway remark. Yes, it's true that she didn't mention that the defendant raised his arm at that stage, but members of the jury she ended up with bruises all over her face. How do you think that would have happened if he hadn't raised his arm at some particular point? In other words, you move from eliciting hard evidence to inviting an inference from the circumstantial evidence, which leads to the same conclusion that his hand must have been up. Now, what I'm telling you, BB, is it sounds in, in, in some ways really quite simple. Of course, in the heat of a trial It's not that easy to remember this. Sometimes people react as an advocate and they do the wrong thing. And on some level, of course, it sounds a little bit sophisticated, what I'm saying. But if you keep a hold of the ground rules and you don't break them, in other words, don't cross-examine your witness or even sound like you're doing it, and learn that you can't win every point, don't be greedy as an advocate. Very important lesson. You can't win every point. If you could win every point... Every case would be a slam dunk. Very few cases are. okay. so you've got to accept that not only on the face of your witness statement, but also in a live dynamic trial, things will happen that will make you think, ouch, I really wish they hadn't said that. But being smart, being versatile and being quick thinking, you've got to turn anything that sounds disastrous into something which is an advantage. Let me give you a simple example. So my witness gave the wrong answer. So my witness forgot to give the right answer. So my witness has holes in their testimony that don't necessarily help the prosecution. What do I say about it? I go to the jury and I say, members of the jury, there are times when, as ordinary members of the public, you hear politicians on television making speeches or answering questions to TV journalists that sound like they prepared that some months earlier. And it doesn't seem to matter what question they're asked. They've got the same stock response. And they plow on with their answers, come hell or high water, doesn't matter what it is, they're gonna give that answer. That's someone who's lying to you, members of the jury, because it's too perfect. People who are telling the truth are never perfect. They're imperfect like you and they're imperfect like me. And so there will be things that you will have heard from Mrs Johnson that will make you think, well, if that's the case, how could the defendant have assaulted her without anything happening before that? There must have been something which triggered it. But members of the jury, she's not here to deliver a set-piece performance, much as a politician would. She's here to do the best she can to tell the truth. And if in some respects you feel that she wasn't a perfect performer, isn't that the best evidence that she's being honest with you? So, BB, it's it's, you know... I always think, you know, whatever happens in a trial, you're not going to win every trial, okay? But whatever happens in a trial, you know, I love the expression in English, make a virtue of necessity. Oh, what a great expression it is. Make a virtue of necessity. If you're forced into a situation, turn it on its head. You said spinning. Spinning doesn't come in questions. Spinning comes in speeches. Okay, that's when you're entitled to spin. That's to do with inferences and all the rest of it. But make a virtue of anything that seems bad. Because believe me, No matter how bad it is, there's always going to be something about it, a little glint that you can use and rescue from that witness's evidence and actually hit your opponent over the head with it as demonstrative of your case being a genuine one rather than a confected one.
0: I'm just letting you know I am going to steal that. I am going to use it. And you're not getting any credit.
1: (laughs) Imitation of the highest form of flatteries. That's fine. That's that's absolutely fine.
0: We've spoken about the handling of witnesses, but what about speeches? Do you have anything to say about closing speeches, for example?
1: Closing speeches are the opportunity for your personality to really come through in a trial, depending upon who your tribunal is. And of course, you've got to be attentive to whether it's a judge sitting on their own or a magistrate, or it's a lay bench, or indeed a full 12-person jury. Your style of advocacy ought to adapt to the differences in those audiences. And particularly when you're addressing a jury, in your mind, you have to find a midpoint, a sort of medium pitch, because there'll be people in that jury who are highly educated, many who are less educated, some who are interested, some who are bored. Your best bet actually is to pitch towards the middle. The second thing I'd say about closing speeches is is this. It's really a corollary of it being your opportunity to express yourself as a personality. I would encourage advocates who initially feel they have to write down their closing speech in full to eventually get themselves out of that sort of approach because it can be very constricting. If you read out your speech, if you've got this document in front of you and you read it out to a tribunal it is almost as though you're not really that concerned about their response. Your focus is on getting your message across, and it is then becoming like a newsreader looking into an autocue. My own method is that I always have different topics for my closing speech, and I put the topic heading at the top of an A4 sheet. And what I do is, in the course of the trial, and at the end of the trial when I'm bringing all the threads together... I jot down bullet points under that topic, bullet points that are helpful to my client's case. So I may make a bullet point in black ink, and then in blue ink, I will write a quote from a witness's evidence that supports that point. And each bullet point will be marked by an asterisk, and it will go all the way down the page. Sometimes it has to go into a second page or a third page, but generally speaking, I streamline it down to one. And what that does is this, is that I will have in front of me a slim file, as I've mentioned before, It'll be on um, on my little lectern and I will see the topic heading in front of me and I'll see the bullet points. I always strive to maintain eye contact with my audience. It's a very personal thing. If you want to sound credible, if you want to sound like you actually care about your case and you care about your party or your client, it's really important to make that emotional connection between you and your audience. So you're looking at them and your eyes are scanning across the rows, the top row and the bottom row of the 12-person jury box. And so it means if I have a trigger in the form of a heading and a few bullet points, it takes no more than this for me to glance at the next point and then speak to the jury. And the more confident and comfortable you become as an advocate, the more you're able to actually remember stuff from the trial in such a way that you don't need constant reminding. And if I tie that in with what I said at the beginning, if you're relaxed in a courtroom setting, the oxygen will flow from your your lungs into your heart, around your body, and very importantly, into your brain. And if you've got a good flow of oxygen, and I'd encourage people to think about doing yoga in their spare time to find ways of relaxing themselves... But if you're getting good oxygen to the brain, your memory is going to be better than if you're stressed or you're anxious. We all know that people who are relaxed tend to remember things. And therefore, it sounds like you're delivering parts of your speech extemporary.
0: What are your three practical tips that listeners can take on to improve their advocacy?
1: Simplify your case, number one. Focus on the soft side of advocacy all the things that I mentioned earlier. Number two, and thirdly and finally, embrace your personality, be yourself. Let the world see who you are as an advocate. There is no one size fits all. There is no one style of advocacy. We are not living in the 1940s or the 1950s when all the advocates were middle-aged, white, middle-class men who went to Oxford and Cambridge. We're living in a completely different world where the audiences who consume the words that we speak have become much more savvy, much less deferential, much quicker to pick up on something that they feel is, is confected, is pretentious, is condescending. Using the expression be real is not an invitation to sound like you've just come off the street, But being real for me is being somebody who likes themselves as an advocate and who enjoys speaking. And as is often said, all barristers and all advocates are frustrated actors. It's totally true. And if it is totally true, then remember that you are there to perform on behalf of somebody else to some other group of people.
0: And where can our listeners connect with you online?
1: I can be found on Twitter, at Joe Sido QC. And I am at 25 Bedford Row, which is a Chambers in London. And you can find me there as well. And I'm on LinkedIn. If anyone's out there on LinkedIn, you'll find me, Joe Sido QC. And I'd be more than happy to hear from you.
0: Thank you so much, Joe, for being on The Advocacy Podcast It's been fantastic and insightful. I've learned a lot of it from it and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have as well. Thank you for listening to The Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.